Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Welcome, Mariah. We're so happy to have you here on the Arthritis Life podcast today. Thanks for having me. Can you start just by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and your relationship to arthritis? Sure. Uh, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when I was 25 years old. At the time, I was uh, a dual degree student at the University of Colorado. I was working on a law degree and a master's in environmental policy. So I was really busy. And then suddenly I was really sick. Um, so I, I went from, you know, being this crazy student to, to suddenly having trouble with everyday tasks. And so it was sort of like a really fast learning curve that I had to adjust to life with arthritis. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. And I know that, um, you know, you're here today to discuss parenting and pregnancy and everything around that. And I know, um, you know, I wanted to mention to the audience that you got your diagnosis prior to any of your pregnancies, correct? Yes, that's correct. I I would say as challenging as it was to be a law student with arthritis, with rheumatoid arthritis, I think the biggest challenge I have faced since my diagnosis has been the process of becoming a mom and starting my family. Uh, today I have three kids. They are uh, eight and six and three. And like you said, all three of those pregnancies were after my diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's jump forward a little bit. And, you know, you founded this amazing resource website, um, social media group called Mama's Facing Forward. So what was, what was the origins, your superhero origin story for Mama's Facing Forward? Why did you create this? <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess I created the resource that I would have liked to have found when I was first starting on the path to parenthood. You know, when I was first contemplating parenthood for the first time, you know, I had just gotten married, we were ready to have a baby. And there just wasn't at the time, there wasn't very much social media. Like I said, my, actually my oldest is about to turn nine. And so at the time there wasn't very much social media. There weren't even very many blogs. If you Googled rheumatoid arthritis and pregnancy, what you got was not very uplifting. And so 
I just wanted to connect with someone else who had done it, who had survived it, who had, who could just basically tell me that my dream of becoming a mom wasn't too far-fetched, even though I was living with this illness. And so I wanted women to have easier access to the resources. So in addition to connecting with each other, I wanted to make the resources that do exist that are helpful, easier to find. And we try to create resources uh, where there, where there are gaps. Yeah. It's a phenomenal resource. And yeah, we, your first pregnancy was just two years before mine. I didn't know you yet, but I had the same, um, until I found your website, I had the same issue, you know, in 2013, 2014, um, you know, not being able to find a lot of, um, really straightforward information. There was a lot of conflicting information. So I really, I appreciate that you created that so much. And Um, I benefited from it myself with my second two pregnancies. I, you know, like I, I am a member of the group as much as I am the leader of it, because I am still facing challenges as a parent and, it's helpful to have a group of people you can turn to who really understand what you're going through and what it's like. You know, I had a group of friends who all had their first baby around the same time as I did. So we were all brand new moms, you know, within a few months of each other, but I was facing issues that they didn't know how to support me with. You know, at the time I was making a choice between breastfeeding and treating my RA, which luckily is not such a choice that people have to make so often anymore, but you know, I was struggling to diaper my baby. I reached a point where I was just having trouble physically caring for him. And, and I just didn't have support from someone who understood what I was going through. And so my goal has always been to make it so that the women who are dealing with these issues, which are, you know, unique to parenting with your own health condition, uh, that, that they have somewhere to turn when they're, when they're doing this and they have support. How do we take these challenges that we're facing that are real and hard and serious and sometimes dark? Uh, and how do yeah. we figure out how to move forward for, for not just for our children, but for ourselves as well? Completely. It's so, it's so valuable. And so the idea for today is um, to go over some of the frequently asked questions about the contemplation phase all the way through the immediate postpartum phase. So when people are contemplating having a child all the way through when, right after the child is, is born, we have, you also have more resources for, for parenting and life hacks and stuff, but we figured that would be a lot for one day. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I think it would make the most sense to just go in chronological order. So starting with the content, I'm just calling it the contemplation phase, you know, when people are, um, you know, going through that decision-making, it's not just so simple, right? That, that you just think, oh, I want a baby. I'm going to have a baby. I think, you know, for some people like I was, I was diagnosed well before I decided to have a baby. That's not the case for everybody. Some people get diagnosed after their first baby, and but then they face this same sort of issue when deciding whether or not to have a second baby or another baby. Um, and so I think, you know, facing pregnancy while also trying to figure out how to manage your own health condition, it it can be kind of, it requires more planning than, you know, than otherwise might, you know, I think had I not had RA, you know, I think we would have just ditched the birth control and kind of like see what happened, you know, but instead it was a much more planned process with, you know, discussions with various doctors about if I needed to change medications in advance and, you know, going forward, like, how do we do this? How do we make it work safely for me and the baby? Yeah, absolutely. And I know that one of the questions that has come up a lot in the group, as you said, was, um, should I have another baby? Cause, and that's a hard decision or should I have another child, um, in, in terms of, you know, maybe doing adoption, but it, that's a hard decision en- enough when you don't have a chronic illness, mm-hmm. but, um, what are some of the good nuggets of advice you've seen or like, or maybe your own journey? I know that you've spoken in the group about, um, your decision to, to go for three. Yeah. Well, I mean, you want to get your doctor on board. That would be the starting place is to, to your rheumatologist or whoever the primary person is who treats your chronic illness. You need to have them on board. And if they're not supportive, that doesn't mean that you need to ditch your dream. It might mean that you need to find a new doctor, or it might mean that you need to like change some things because there's a lot of research that shows that the best pregnancy outcomes happen if your disease is well controlled before you get pregnant. So it's really, wor- it's really worthwhile to make sure you're doing as well as possible 
before you get pregnant and, and have a plan. And then there's some medications like methotrexate, for example, is a super no-no while while pregnant. And so there's some that you need to stop in advance. And so you have to know those things before. Of course, if you if it, it does happen that people get pregnant on these medications and those outcomes generally turn out fine as well, because you could just get off them quickly. But so that's another situation where you need to have your doctor on board. You need to be able to talk to your doctor as soon as something you know happens and you're and you're ready. That that's a great point. I had to do that with methotrexate personally because you know we knew for sure that that I didn't want that in my system. Another thing that's come up in the group that's also come up for me in social media comments before, like on my own page, which I honestly did not think about when we decided to get pregnant was genetic predisposition. People have asked me, are you worried to pass it on to your child? I mean, not that I wasn't aware that it can be hereditary, but it's such a small risk, even when hereditary that I just, it didn't really factor in for me, but from being in the mama's facing forward Facebook group, I've seen it come up a lot. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on, on that? I mean, I do think that it's a really legitimate concern that people have. If you're living with some sort of chronic illness, especially if you've suffered and had a difficult time with it, obviously you don't want to wish that upon your children. But I mean, I think my advice there generally is that learn about the science of your condition and and what the risks really are. For me, learning about the science kind of helped me put my fears at risk. I mean, I think it's important to remember that plenty of women with rheumatic diseases have completely healthy children and sometimes completely healthy women have children with medical issues. I mean, medical issues are going to come up in your life. And if by some chance your child did end up with a medical condition, they'd have a fierce and knowledgeable advocate who would cut right through the red tape and get them the treatment they needed immediately in you, you know, since you've already been there and you've already gone through it, it wouldn't be the same for your child. So I don't think a life is any less valuable if you're living with a chronic illness. And, and while I certainly hope it never occurs for my kids, I, I didn't see that as a reason to, to not bring them into the world. Yeah. That that's pretty similar to how I felt. I think also before my first pregnancy um, or my only pregnancy, I, my disease had been pretty well controlled. So I think I was on the optimistic side. I certainly think if I had had, you know, years and years of uncontrolled disease activity, I think I maybe would have felt different. Um, the other thing I've seen come up that I, that is such a, you know, such a heartbreaking thing, but it's the mental side where you know that your disease has taken things from you. Maybe your disease has taken opportunities from you, or you feel like it's stolen part, you know, stolen money from you or time. Um, certainly and so, that. <laughs> yeah, certainly that that's just logistically true. But, you know, then I've seen people have, um, thoughts like, I don't want it to steal my disease to be the reason I don't have another, you know, another mm-hmm. child or a child in the first place, which is, yeah, it's just a very deep psychological dilemma. I think people have, I mean, I think something that also kind of help me work through that is that obviously my illness, whether or not my children end up with their own health conditions, my health condition has an impact on their lives, a big impact. And sometimes it's a disappointing impact because sometimes I'm not able to do what they want me to do. But I, I think that there's a lot, there's actually some benefits to growing up with a mom who has a chronic illness. You know, my kids learn not to judge somebody by how they look because, you know, you never know when someone might be in pain they learn compassion. They're so compassionate and they're so helpful and they're growing to be really independent. And so like, it's not all a negative thing necessarily. And I think that kind of helped me deal with it. Yeah. So true. I, that's really echo something, some things Renee had said, in I think it was episode 33 as well. Um, and then, so, okay, moving chronologically, okay. <laughs> the next step uh, is the actual act of making a baby or yeah. choosing, yeah, choosing to adopt or use a surrogate. So for, it's not, you know, just one way I know because of chronic illness, many people do consider, um, again, adoption or, or surrogacy, but let's start with sex and making <laughs> a baby. So, I, I mean, yeah. as far as adoption and surrogacy, those paths, like I definitely valid for people who are living with chronic illnesses. And it's an area where I would like to grow the resources on Mama's Facing Forward. So, you know, if anyone's listening out there who has a story they'd like to share or has awesome resources on that, you know, send them my way so I can connect people to them. Because I think 
pregnancy is not the only way forward. However, if you want to get pregnant, generally that means you have to have sex. And I personally found when I was trying to get pregnant the first town, the, the couple of resources that I found, I found it very frustrating that they jumped straight from, okay, first talk to your doctor. And then they jumped straight to, yay, now you're pregnant. Here's what you do. And I was like, wait, there's this stage in the middle where you've maybe changed some of your meds and maybe like sex is not that easy necessarily for someone living with rheumatoid arthritis or a physical condition. And so, you know, I think I don't necessarily have all the solutions there, but I think it's important to acknowledge that that is a stage that can be challenging for, for people and that it's not, it's not just like as easy as talk to your doctor and then you're pregnant. You have to get creative. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. And I had an earlier um, couple episodes on like ways to alter your mm-hmm. sex routines. And, but, you know, know that I know there can be a stigma around you know, talking mm-hmm. about sex, but it is something you can bring up to your provider. You could, you know, um, get linked up with like, even there's some occupational therapists that focus on it that can help you with like more like the physical side, as well as there's counselors and you know mental health professionals that can help you with the emotional side too. Yeah. And I would say also like a lot of the advice out there about kind of intimacy and chronic illness tends to focus on, oh, there are other ways to be intimate besides intercourse, but obviously intercourse is what you need if the goal is pregnancy. And so if on the Mama's Facing Forward website, I have uh, a long conversation that I had with uh, rheumatology nurse practitioner, Iris Zink, where we talked about that, where we talked about if you want to get pregnant, you kind of have to have intercourse. Um, and so that video is up on the Mama's Facing Forward website, as is a review of Iris's new book about intimacy and chronic illness. And so those are some places to turn if that's an area where you struggle. That's so helpful. And the other thing I want to acknowledge before we move on to pregnancy is infertility because, you know, infertility can strike any, anyone, but it is slightly more prevalent in people with chronic illnesses, depending on the illness, but it's, it it can be more prevalent for people with rheumatoid arthritis, especially with uncontrolled disease activity. So, you know, infertility can lead people to pursue things like IVF that like technically don't require the physical act of um, sex, but obviously can have a huge financial and emotional burden as well. The one thing that I always also, thank you for reminding me, try to point out when this topic comes up is uh, the impact of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications on fertility. Uh, Even the -the over-the-counter kind can inhibit your uh, ovulation. So nobody ever told me that. Even when I went and told my doctor, hey, I'd like to get pregnant, And then I went off some of my meds and I was like, oh, well, I'll just take an Advil before we have sex because I'm, you know, and so you got to make sure that whatever you're taking to deal with your pain and your energy levels or whatever, to make the physical act of sex possible, that it's not going to reduce your chances of getting pregnant. If, if that's the goal. That's so, so helpful. Thank you. Thank you for letting me know that. And I think one other thing to mention, I know that primarily the audience is made of like uh, women, but there also can be impacts on the male males in terms of sperm and health and count and everything. So again, so important to just bring it up to your healthcare teams, talk about it as early as possible. And so that you can make the best decisions, you know, for Definitely. your family. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. Then we move on to the actual, Yay, now um, you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Now you're pregnant. If that's how you've chosen to pursue or how it's been decided for you. Um, and so, I mean, this could be a whole episode, but what are some of the common areas you've seen of confusion for people? I I mean, the question that comes up the most often in mama's facing forward has to do with medication while pregnant. And I can tell you from my personal experience that that data has changed extremely quickly. With my first pregnancy, like we talked about, I got off methotrexate, but I also got off the biologic that I was using to treat my RA. And I was essentially unmedicated through that entire pregnancy. Um, But with my third baby, I switched to a a pregnancy safe biologic and I stayed on it for my entire pregnancy. And there's now a lot more data to support doing that. And so it's really awesome because women have a lot more options these days for having a healthy and, you know, easier pregnancy than, than I did with my unmedicated firstborn, you know? And so I think that's a, it's a, it's a scary thing to consider putting something in your body that will impact your baby. 
And for that reason, I, um, I always recommend Mother to Baby, which is a nonprofit organization that collects data on medication exposures during pregnancy and breastfeeding. And I actually joined two of their studies with my second and third baby so that I was, you know, contributing more data so that for the next mama down the line, hopefully there's even more data to make this difficult decision easier. Um, because I, you know, it's scary to think about exposing your baby to this medication, but you have to balance that you're not, it's not the risk of exposing your baby to the medication versus the risk of not. That's not the alternative. The alternative is the risk of an untreated medical condition from, in my case, untreated RA flaring while pregnant. Inflammation in the body is dangerous to the baby too. And so I began my second pregnancy unmedicated and actually ended up back on a biologic during my pregnancy because we reached a point where the danger of the medication was not as much as the danger of the uncontrolled inflammation in my body. It's such an important point. And I think one that's often lost in our kind of the, our tendency when we're anxious or stressed to want to have like black or white thinking like, okay, well, the medication might be dangerous. So I'm going to just not do it. I'm not, I don't even want to go well, there. There's a lot of pressure from society to go that way as well. Like mm-hmm. the message that most moms get is sacrifice yourself and no meds is definitely better for the baby. But if you're living with a chronic condition, that's not necessarily true. It might mm-hmm. be better, healthier for you and the baby to stay on some kind of medication. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the other area that I know you and I have talked about that is um, an area of confusion is that, oh, well, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, you're just going to go into remission when you're pregnant, right? Everyone goes into remission. Let's I mean, when that. I first, when I first got diagnosed before we were ready to have kids or anything, my husband and I used to joke about, well, I'll just get pregnant and then I'll feel better for a while. And, and that is not how it went down for me. <laughs> I know, I know there are There are people who go into remission and feel much better while they are pregnant, but that number is not as high as they used to think it was. I think they, the number they used to think it was around 75% of women with RA went into remission while pregnant, but uh, newer studies, uh, um, a review of studies recently in the journal of rheumatology found that it's only 60% of women, which doesn't sound like a big drop, but that means that 40% of women either aren't getting any relief from their RA while they're pregnant, or it could even get worse while they're pregnant, which is exactly what happened to me uh, the second time around. And so I, I think not that, not that you want to go into it with this attitude of, Oh God, this is going to be terrible. But if you're living with RA and you want to get pregnant, I think you should know it's a possibility that you might have to deal with it while you're pregnant and you should take the time to make a plan for that before your three months, <laughs> I was in my third trimester and enormous and emotional and miserable and trying to figure out what to do about it. And so I, with my third baby, I had a, I made a plan in advance. And I think if you'd like to try going med-free, like fantastic, do that. Maybe you will be one of those women that goes into remission. And that's great if you can do that. But in case it doesn't work out that way, you might want to know what you would be comfortable doing while pregnant so that, so that if that occurs, you can, you can handle it. Uh, Absolutely. And I think another nuance that's often lost is that, um, so I was one of the 60% that went into remission during pregnancy, but I flared horribly postpartum and my biologic never worked as well again. And we kept having to increase it and increase it. And then I was getting more infections and I got mastitis four times in six weeks. And then we had to wean and the whole thing, I I think, again, this was 2014 when the data was still like, oh, don't take biologics unless you Mm -hmm. have to. And now they, like I, even though I had gone into remission in my first pregnancy, if I was going to do it again today, I would stay on medication because that that was safe for the baby, because I would want to prevent that postpartum flare up. That postpartum flare is really common. Um, In fact, that is the period in which some women experience their first symptoms and get diagnosed. And I have a special place in my heart for those women, because that is a challenging period, knowing that that might happen and going into it that way. And so to be surprised with RA symptoms during that crazy period anyways, would, would be really challenging. And, and yeah, the postpartum flare is, is definitely real. And it, it def- I will say that in my third pregnancy where I stayed on a biologic the entire time, it was the only one where I did not have a postpartum flare. 
Yeah. And my understanding is that anytime you stop a biologic and then restart it, you mm-hmm. have a risk of having developed antibodies to it in the period. That's, that was the theory of what happened to me. I, I experienced that as well. After my second pregnancy, the biologic that I had depended on for many years suddenly was like not cutting it anymore. And I had to switch to something else. And, and that's something else to consider as well. Yeah. And again, like, of course, we're not giving medical advice. We're just, you know, sharing different sides to the story and things to consider that, again, things that might seem so black and white at first are more complicated. And the other experience I had, and again, hopefully it's better than 2013 slash 14, but I remember getting a handout from the um, OB people and then a handout from the rheumatologist about my medications and what was safe and what wasn't for, um, baby and me. And they were literally opposite because I was on Remicade and Imuran. And it was like the American College of Gynecology says one of those two is good and one of them is bad. And the American College of Rheumatology says the opposite one is good. It's opposite one's bad. So I'm like, which it was. Yeah. I think luckily as the data continues to improve on these medications, hopefully the messaging will start to line up with each other, but it is definitely the case. I see it a lot with women that I talk to that they're getting conflicting advice from the OB and the rheumatologist. And that can be really challenging because how are you supposed to know which is better and which is okay? And like, you're not, I mean, some of you might be a doctor, but I'm not a doctor. Like I, (laughs) that's a time where I like to refer women to mother to baby because they have the actual data and they, you could talk or chat or call and they will explain it to you for free. And that gives you a starting place with the facts to go and look at the recommendations that each of your doctors has given. It is also okay to ask your doctors to talk to each other to to help them figure it out so that they can, you know, maybe figure it out together and then give you some information. And it is also, um, I did before my third pregnancy because I got I got switched to a biologic that I had never heard of by my insurance uh, in a step therapy type process. We had chosen one that I had been on during a previous pregnancy and my insurance picked a different one for me and I hadn't heard of it. And so I went and saw uh, a high risk OB and, and we went over, she had never heard of this medication either, but we looked it up and, and that person helped contribute to my decision to stay on my medication because you need, you might need help interpreting that data. That's so, so helpful. Um, Another thing that I wanted to mention is not just to do with medications, but if you have rheumatoid arthritis or any kind of autoimmune condition, you, as far as I understand, are more likely to develop gestational diabetes. And that was a shock to me when I developed it because I was, you know, I didn't realize that was a risk factor and I hadn't gained a super large amount of weight. And I had, I had an incorrect assumption that, oh, gestational diabetes is like when people maybe gained too much weight or something like kind of like type two diabetes, not to say that that's always the case, but kind of more to do with lifestyle factors. Whereas actually gestational diabetes is more like type one where it's autoimmune and you can get it without having any behavioral risk factors like weight gain or or diet. I felt really guilty and terrible when I found out I got it because there was like a a week delay between when I got the result and when I actually had an appointment where they explained everything to me. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's important when you're discussing or considering pregnancy to remember that pregnancy all by itself comes with a list of symptoms and potential complications. And like, you can be the healthiest woman in the world and get pregnant and end up dealing with issues. You know, my first son was breech. And so he was, and then I had preeclampsia and I was on bed rest and like that can happen to anybody. And so I think in some ways, you know, planning and talking to your doctor in advance, like hopefully prepares you to face whatever comes up while you're pregnant and, and to remember that you need to take care of yourself and that taking that's a, a mother, a motherhood lesson to learn for if you're any mom, but especially a mom with primary illness that, you know, taking care of yourself is taking care of your family in this case, very directly. Totally. You know, a lot of us, before we get diagnosed with a chronic illness kind of operate under this assumption or most able-bodied people operate under this assumption that like, okay, well, like my health is under my control. Like if I do the right things, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be healthy. And it is actually just 
not true. Like we all actually know that, right? Anyone, any day could get hit by a car or could get cancer or could get autoimmune disease, completely things out of your control. So I think, yeah. And I think some, some women who get pregnant, they've not had to deal with any health issues before. So it's like a rude awakening to them. They're like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. I could eat all the right things. I could do like, I did prenatal yoga and I did all these things. And my baby was breached too. And I mean, but it wasn't like so much of a shock because I'm like, yeah, anything can happen. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I am already, I've already kind of gone over that hump of like acceptance that there's a randomness to health and things out of my control where there's, I think for people who've never gone through that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that (laughs) I think that like, like when we were talking about, there's some positive aspects to having a mom with a chronic, like you learn stuff from dealing with this, that, that makes challenges uh, easier to face. I think sometimes. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, a membership and support community where you'll learn how to develop your own Thrive toolbox so you can live a full life despite your rheumatic disease or chronic illness. Learn more in the show notes or by going to www.myarthritislife.net. When I was going to jump next to the postpartum period, but I realized childbirth does occur between. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) So sorry, we didn't plan for this part, but, um, you know, I mean, there, to my knowledge, there isn't a ton that's like really rheumatoid arthritis specific mm-hmm. when it comes to, to childbirth, but is there anything you'd want to speak to about it? Well, I, I will say that I have three children and I have never been in labor. <laughs> um, my, my first baby was breech and I had preeclampsia, so he needed to be delivered early. And so a C-section was, I had no choice in the matter. Um, and then I did have a choice the second time around and, um, I felt a lot of pressure to try for a VBAC because I was told that was what was, you know, quote unquote, best for the baby. And can you tell them Uh, what a VBAC stands for? That's a, that's a vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, And in many cases, it turns out safely. And, and, and if a vaginal birth is something that's important to you, then it's totally something to pursue. Uh, In my case, my RA did play a role in me deciding not to go for that route because my worry was that the worst case scenario was I would, you know, labor for a really long time and have a really difficult time and end up with a C-section anyways, and then go into my potential postpartum flare with, you know, a scar to recover from and exhaustion from labor. So I chose to have a C-section the second time around. And then, you know, then they just install a zipper for the third one. (laughs) They don't give you any choice in the matter, but I do remember, you know, before, the C-section became something that was obviously going to happen to me. Um, I worried about labor and about like, how would my hips do and what would my joints do? And, and I took a birth class and I asked those questions. I was like, Hey, I have rheumatoid arthritis. And, and they were like, "Uh, they didn't, they didn't have really any good information. So I just tried to internalize like all the different types of birthing positions so that if I faced, if I was in labor and I faced a scenario where I was, in pain or my joints were in pain that, that I could kind of have an alternative to consider. Um, I learned about all the alternatives concerning birth, concerning medication, concerning unmedicated, just so that I would, you know, be prepared because I knew like we were talking about, I knew like anything can happen and that I was facing perhaps more challenges than others. Yeah. That, that makes a ton of sense. And like you, my first and only born was a breech baby within, you know, they they did try to turn him, but he didn't turn. So he, it was, you have to basically do a plan. I like to tell my oldest that he was born, but first. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we had him at 39 and a half weeks and he, I didn't feel a single contraction. I have no idea what yeah, labor still feels like to me as yeah. well. <laughs> we, we joked that he was like a cat. He didn't move a lot. And he just kind of was like, I would just feel his little fingers and toes. But yeah, I had his, it was just interesting. But yeah, so the, the C-section for me was really painful. I mean, I thought, oh, I have a high pain tolerance. You know, I can mm-hmm. deal. And I did obviously deal with it. But um, it was no walk in the park. So when well, that obviously complicates the postpartum period yeah. as well, either way yeah. that you end up with there's challenges. Yeah. Let's move on to the postpartum period. Um, and in infant feeding, which is a big part of the postpartum period, but I know we both have strong feelings about feeding. I'm going to try to contain myself emotionally, go to my happy place, but can you share a little bit about your personal experiences with feeding your children? Sure. 
Um, I really wanted to breastfeed. I not just because ever, you know, the breast is best, whatever propaganda there was, it was important to me. I, I thought it would be an interesting bonding experience. And it was just something for me, I don't know about you, but when I was pregnant, I sort of marveled in my body doing the right thing for once, like getting it right. I, it was sort yes. of magical. And yes. so I kind of wanted to hang on to that feeling. I thought, oh, I can even as, you know, as trouble as I have with my body, if I can feed my infant, that sounds amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Breastfeeding was not as easy as I thought it would be. Uh, there's a learning curve. It, it can be challenging to figure out how to do. Um, it's constant. If you're breastfeeding, it means that no one can feed the baby, but you, um, but it was, it was important to me. And so I, I battled it out, uh, for three months with my first baby. And that was back in the day when you weren't exposed, you weren't allowed to take any medications while you're breastfeeding. And so basically I reached a point where I couldn't pick him up anymore and I couldn't care for him. So I was deciding between, well, do I want him to have breast milk? Or do I want to be able to care for him in other ways? And so I weaned him at three months so that I could um, care, be his mom, take some medications and care for him. Luckily, the data, especially on breastfeeding, has improved a lot. And a lot of the biologics are considered breastfeeding safe, uh, partly because the molecule is enormous. And so it's unlikely to pass into the breast milk. That's why those medications are so expensive is because it's an enormous, complicated molecule, right? Um, and then the other thing that is that if it does pass into the breast milk, the baby's stomach is likely to destroy it. Or at least that's how I, it was explained to me. Like, that's why we have to inject it instead of taking it orally because it could get destroyed in the stomach. And so that's another place where mother to baby has data and you can look at the data and you can see what your options are for staying medicated and breastfeeding. And I will say that I stayed on my biologic with my third baby and I was able to breastfeed her the duration that I wanted to. And I ended up weaning her for different reasons around nine months. Um, and so, and so I think that it's important for women to know that if they're interested or they desire to breastfeed, um, that there is help, there's lactation consultants, there's, you know, medication support, there's things that you can do to make it easier. But I, on the flip side of that, I think it's equally important to know that if you don't desire to breastfeed or if breastfeeding turns out to be too difficult or too exhausting, that it's totally okay to give your baby formula. Yeah. I think in my case, um, I had a similar first born experience where I thought, well, of course I'm going to try breastfeeding, like, cause it's the best. And I always want to do the best. Like I want to be a little mm -hmm. A student, you know, give me my star on my star chart, you know, and I want to be the best mom ever. Um, and so I, I mean, there's hard it, when you're becoming a new parent, there's hardly anything that's like clearly the best, you know, like the mm -hmm. two things are like breast is best and put your baby to sleep on a flat surface without a bunch of blankets around it, which even that there's plenty of people who argue other ways, but like, those are the two kind of like keep the things that keep being quoted as like the evidence, the evidence, evidence, you know, says this, but what I found comforting for me when I ended up um, combo feeding, which first of all is it's often looked at as you either give breast milk or you either give full right. bottles of formula. There's actually a huge spectrum in between that. And people usually refer to that as just combo feeding, but it's a combination of breast, either breast feeding at the breast or breast milk in a bottle and then formula feeding. And, um, combo feeding can really be the best of both worlds for a lot of people because you can, you know, adjust your schedule to where you can get like a nice six hour stretch of sleep. Even when you have an infant, if you have someone in the home to help you like a partner who can do one of those nighttime feeds. Right. So I, like, I think it's a really nice, happy medium. And I think what's, what has been lost in this breast is best mantra. If you're doing it because you think that there's something wrong with formula, that formula is an inadequate food source or, or dangerous. That's really not true. Like, mm -hmm. um, in the United States or in a mo any modern country with clean drinking water formula is completely meets all of a baby's nutritional needs and the health out. If you're doing it for the health outcomes, there are, there definitely are some health outcomes at the population level that are that 
suggests that there's less ear infections and a few less GI infections. But for any one individual baby, the actual health um, effect to me is not very impressive. I'm speaking as a like health provider, this data about breast milk, it's bizarre. I've never seen a public health issue that's presented as so strong when the actual data it's, you're not like literally saving babies lives. It's just a few less. I'm sorry. I'm like, I ear infections (laughs) and GI infections are really sad. And, and I'm, I don't want any babies to suffer, but like, to me, that is not worth the unbelievable amounts of guilt that mothers are made to feel for not doing like the best. Well, I think it's similar to the decision we were talking about earlier, whether to take a medication while you're pregnant or not. You're not comparing a perfect breastfeeding experience to the, the flip side of that is what does the breastfeeding experience do to your ability to be a mom? Like if it is it's not like it's, you can breastfeed them or you can bottle feed them. It has no impact. It's a huge impact. Like, so if it has, for me, I reached a point where I needed stronger medication to be a mom. And overall, it was much better for my baby that I be able to be his mom and take care of him and give him that, you know, and so whatever benefits of breastfeeding that I was giving up, he was gaining in having a healthy mother and a healthy family that was moving forward, you know, and not kind of sacrificing everything on the, the idea that this substance is better than that substance. Because guess what, when you get to kindergarten, nobody asks if you were breastfed or bottle fed, nobody cares. No. Yeah, no. And that, I think that's so important to look at the context, like in occupational therapy, I used to work in pediatrics and we always talked about like, you know, the child exists in a family system. You can't just look at the child. And that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, so if I'm looking at, you know, I, I always say breast milk is best in a vacuum. If everything in your life is the same, you know, in terms of like, let's say a perfect year, everything's great. You're feeling how, you know, might as well do the best one. If literally it doesn't like your life is the same either way, of course, but this, nobody lives in that perfect scenario, you know, and it's particularly people with chronic illnesses. And in fact, unfortunately right now, Babies that are exclusively breastfed are actually at a greater risk of malnutrition because there's a lack of understanding about the fact that many women, regardless of chronic illness status, don't produce adequate breast milk. Just throughout history, that's been true. That's why people had nursemaids and stuff. It's just because the human body doesn't always produce perfectly. So, you know, it's become kind of a a bit of a a challenge, but in general, I just want to give like anyone who's listening, you know, a permission, like to supplement with formula, if that would allow you to improve your quality of life, you know, as a parent, it's not bad for your child. And that's totally valid. Like, I think it's really hard, particularly, particularly with your first baby, because at the beginning, all they do is eat and sleep and poop. And so feeding just seems like this huge deal about, and it is, it's very important part of a baby's life, but there's so much more to being a mom than how you feed your kids. And you need to be there for that. And you need to be your best, healthiest self. And you need to make the choices that work for you there. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Exactly. And I do want to make sure I say that I'm talking a little bit about like the health benefits mm-hmm. of, of breast milk, but there's a lot of other reasons women choose to breastfeed. One of the reasons that I wanted to, um, was, you know, the idea of a bonding experience. Like I personally right. didn't end up feeling there was actually, I felt a superior bonding experience when I switched to formula. Cause I felt like I wasn't as tired and I was able to like be more present with my child. But many people find that, that it's a real bonding experience to breastfeed. They want, and like, you don't have to justify why you, I don't want to be like no, slamming breastfeeding. Of it's course just like, not. I yeah. wanted that. I really, like yeah. I valued that and it was hard and it was sad when I had to make the choice for my, for my own self to not do that. And so I'm super thrilled that the data is better on medication so that women have more options so that people who feel strongly about wanting that, that type of bond can, can do that. But there are also other ways to bond with your kid as well. Yeah. And I'm going to link in the comments to a really wonderful nonprofit called the fed is best foundation. Excellent. So helpful because they have produced in a, it's run by a doctor and they've produced a lot of interesting data that again, helps you just have an informed decision. You know, you can say, okay, this is worth when you're sacrificing something for your child. You just want to know 
that you are actually accurately weighing the pros and cons. If you think that breast milk is a magical substance, that's going to mean your child's never going to get sick. And they're never like, that's not true. Like, so, you know, just know, get, get the best information you can and, and recognize that, you know, if you're feeding your child, you're doing a good job. And within five years, they're going to be eating, you know, gummy worms off the floor and goldfish crackers. <laughs> and no, <laughs> that yeah. And so of course, yeah, feeding is a huge part, but of, of the postpartum period, but what there's about, also- what about the physical aspects yes. of feeding, whether you're feeding with a bottle or your breast, it's a physical job to hold and feed a baby. And so I always like to remind women, especially with living with rheumatic conditions who may struggle from repetitive motions about making sure that you're feeding in a comfortable position. And I'm sure you have probably more excellent insight on that than I do as an OT. But for me, that was a really important to make sure I had a a place to feed, especially when they're teeny tiny, that was comfortable for me so that I wasn't doing anything to stress my body more than it needed to be stressed. I found um, having a nursing pillow really helpful. And uh, if you're going to do, like you said, kind of supplement or maybe do some breast milk in a bottle, if you're going to pump for heaven's sakes, get one of those hands-free pumping bras. So you don't have to like hold up those little cups because that's just not good for your wrists. Well, my wrists just hurt thinking about that. Yeah. And right? <laughs> I, I do want to acknowledge like the expertise that patients develop through their lived experiences, because certainly as an occupational therapist, I, you know, I learned a lot of like ergonomic principles and there's, and I think that if you're feeling overwhelmed by just trying to um, phys- cope with the physical demands of parenting. An occupational therapist is like an amazing team member to have, but I also want to respect that or mention that, you know, I mean, so many parents develop the most amazing adaptations and strategies just through their own trial and error. Cause again, you're doing this 24 seven, right? One of the cool things yeah. I think about the mama's facing forward group is that it's this kind of hive mind of people who have been there before and have done, done it by trial and error and figured it out. And so if you have a question, you can go in there and say, Hey, I'm having this specific problem. Anybody have advice? And lots of times people chime in with techniques and products and different things you can try. And I think that's really cool. It's amazing. And yeah, because a lot of the physical demands of, of new, you know, baby infant infanthood, um, are, are going to be difficult for anyone. There are, like you mentioned, you know, nursing pillows are pretty universal, like a little, you know, baby shower gift nowadays, but yeah, a few other things that, um, parents of, of, uh, who have chronic illnesses or chronic pain might want to consider are, um, with regard to feeding, if you're going to be doing any sort of pumping or bottle feeding, the actual mechanics and the physical strength required to twist the tops off the bottles can really differ between brands. So, you know, if you have friends who've had small children, you know, try to um, see if you can borrow different bottles. Now, of course, unfor- a lot of babies are picky too about which kind of, if, you're, if your do- baby gets a say in that as well, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, contrary to what some, some people say, my understanding of the latest data is that there that nipple confusion is is not as big of an issue if you if you do actually introduce the bottle earlier. So you know it's a, it won't necessarily sabotage your breastfeeding relationship to introduce a bottle to get them used to it early on. Just just again planning mm-hmm. for all your future eventualities, like in case I end up you know weaning later on. Um, so thinking about the bottle dimensions and then something really simple, but it helped me a lot is I, you know, learned different positions because a lot of times we think, oh, the, the main nursing position is like the hold where you're just, you kind of see all the pictures of people just holding their baby just across their body, like a horizontal, but there's other ones, like one's called the football hold where the baby mm-hmm. isn't across your whole chest, but it's on your side. There's side lying nursing where you're lying down. That can I be did really- a lot of laying down nursing with yeah. my third baby. <laughs> Yeah. And some of these positions are harder to do in the very beginning phase before like the baby infant can hold its head up, but you know, just know that you don't have to just do it the first way that comes to your mind. Yeah. You can alter. And if you're having really specific pain, like, um, you know, in your wrist or your thumbs that, you know, to see a certified hand therapist as soon as possible, they can fabricate or make a customized splint for you. I had that made for me when my son was about um, 10 or 11 weeks old because my wrist and my thumb were really hurting on my left side. And it's called, they're made out of this stuff called thermoplastic. And it literally, it's hot. They, they make it hot and then they mold it to your actual 
hand and your thumb and then it cools and it hardens when it cools. So it's really, and that's was covered by insurance for me. And it should be, if you can get a doctor's referral most times. So knowing that there's other things like that, um, of course, the other workaround is delegation. <laughs> I, I really enjoy when I weaned, I enjoyed that being able to delegate. And even if you can't, um, or even if you can't delegate the actual feeding, because you've determined that breastfeeding at the breast is something that you really, that, that is really important to you. You can even have, let's say a, a partner or a grandparent, someone help bring the baby to you. Let's say you're mm-hmm. lying in bed and you know, the baby starts crying, have the partner bring the baby so that you're, that you can kind of make as few energy demands on the mom as, po- as, as possible. Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah. The other little thing I did the sm- such a small thing, but I made a tray with all of like the little things I wanted to have around me. And this was more for like the C-section recovery, but I found I was constantly like, asking people, can you bring me my water bottle? Can you bring me my chapstick? Can you bring me my phone? And I was like, I just had a tray that like had everything on it. So I didn't have to. And then I would, if I moved my spot, like if I moved from the lazy boy recliner to the couch, I just moved the tray instead of Excellent. like <laughs> moving half Excellent. of the things and forgetting. Um, and the other thing that, that comes to mind with physical demands is also, of course, diapering and clothing. And people like to invent diapers and clothing items that are very difficult to snap and unsnap, don't they? <laughs> Those teeny tiny metal snaps. Uh, who decided, especially on the pajamas where it's like three o'clock in the morning and you have to line up like 13 little, forget it. I threw them all away. Only yeah. pajamas with zippers. No, no snaps. I mean, I can usually handle the like three on a onesie. Okay. But like 13 in a row at three o'clock in the morning. No, I'm not doing that. No, no, definitely. And I would sometimes would just do the middle snap. If it was a onesie that has Mm -hmm. three on the bottom, just do the middle one. You don't actually need all three most of the time. Um, And in terms of diapering, I know that you did cloth diapering. Can you explain a little bit how that worked? Yeah, I actually have been cloth diapering for nine straight years I just wow. am start I I'm just retiring them now my, oh my youngest still uses them at night but um so there's I chose it and it is it's is a little bit more work but it became something that was just kind of natural to me and it saved us so much money because I'm diapering my third baby with the same diapers some of them that I used on my first and I, I do use snaps on my cloth diapers. They're a little bit bigger than the ones that you find on a onesie. And so I generally didn't have trouble snapping them. But there were times where I had trouble snapping them when my if my I was really having trouble with my hands, they could be challenging to mm-hmm. snap. And so I just bought some paper diapers to use until I felt up to using the cloth ones again. You know, it's kind of like you said, it's not, you know, breast milk or formula it's not paper diaper or, you know, like you can do kind of a combo of whatever, you know, works for you. And I, I loved my cloth diapers and I, I, they worked really well for us. And, you know, I think some people think um, they don't want a cloth diaper because they don't want poop in their washing machine. Mm -hmm. There's going to be poop in your washing machine. (laughs) Like There's going to be a blowout. There's going to be an outfit completely covered in poop. Like there's going to be poop in your washing machine. So if that's, what's holding you back, no, it's going to happen. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's one of those things where like, you don't really need to feel pressure to go either way. You know, some people think, oh, cloth diaper is better for the environment. Don't you gotta, you gotta take the breaks, take on what you feel comfortable taking on and then take the easier route where that feels better for you and, and feel no guilt about that. Um, we certainly have been a lot lazier with the cloth diapers the third time around. And so there's always a package of paper ones, you know, just in case. I think that's, that's so, so helpful. I really think there's a psychology to it where, again, if you feel like your chronic illness has taken something from you, you know, Mm -hmm. you you don't want to let it affect, you know, your parenting experience. And I empathize with that, but it's also really freeing to say, you know what? Yeah, this is what I'm dealing with. Like I have a lot of, you know, pain or I have a lot of fatigue right now and I'm going to take the easy way out. And that is okay. Like no one is going to be hurt. Like you're not doing that with safety. Yeah. Some people I have heard, um, people with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, advocate for, for Velcro closure on cloth diapers, which is fantastic until they're about, oh, I don't know, like eight months old. Then they figure out how to rip those suckers right off. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) We tried some Velcro, which thinking that would be easier to close, but I'm all for the snaps because they stay on and you don't end up with a uh, surprise in the crib, you know? (laughs) 
Oh, totally. And and we did disposable diapers, but something that I noticed is that there was a difference between brands with regard to how how much you would have to pinch and twist mm-hmm. them off. So again, it's a good um, idea to try out, you know, maybe buy the cheapest package of a couple different brands before to see, okay, this one, you know, is, is really, really sticky. I have to pull really hard to get it off. That's not going to work. One other thing about diapering is if you live in a house, Uh, like a two or more story house, have a place to change the diaper on every floor of the house. With my first baby, you know, we had it, we had the cute nursery and the changing table and the, and the pad and everything was set up in his nursery. And then we'd be downstairs and he'd need a diaper change. And so then I'm carrying the baby up and down the stairs unnecessarily to like, you know, wear myself out. That's not necessary. Have, even if it's, on the floor, on a couch, you know, whatever works, have some supplies for diaper changing so that you don't have to like trek to wherever you, you're going to change the diaper. I think it's a great idea if you're living with pain to have lots of safe places to put the baby down. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a pack and play or a bouncy seat, or I don't even know what they have anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I had a rock and play, but I think those got recalled. So I loved the rock and play one. and they did get, re- they did get <laughs> um, recalled, but whatever it is, have places throughout your house so that if, if you start feeling pain and you're holding like, so there's always somewhere safe to put the baby down. And then the so flip side smart. of that is I depended a lot on baby wearing to uh, be physically close to my babies without putting strain on my joints. Um, there's so yeah. many different kinds of carriers out there that you, it's basically guaranteed that one exists that will be comfortable for you. And, and I think that's a fantastic way to, um, to, to stay close to your baby and not put, you know, stress on your joints. Absolutely. And I think we're going to be doing a follow-up episode on all of the best like parenting life hacks for period of when they transitioned from an infant newborn to like a baby slash toddler (laughs) slash big kids because initially (laughs) yeah well and and speaking of that I do want to before we wrap up talk a little bit give you a minute to to talk a little bit about the research that you presented at the American College of Rheumatology in 2020 about the um the the needs of of women with rheumatic diseases postpartum um because that was such an important I and I had the fortune to be able to co-present with you um we kind of had like a three people session but you know what what would you want the audience to know about so I have this this mama's facing forward it's a private Facebook group I'm pretty strict about membership and people have to agree to the rules people have to be either a mom or interested in becoming one and and then they have to say that they personally live with a chronic illness right so it's, it's supposed to be a private, safe space, but I was learning all kinds of general things about the needs of moms with chronic illness and, and the support they weren't getting and what, and I wondered like, how could we take what I'm learning in the group and, and, you know, give it to, to doctors, to whoever needs to hear this information. So, um, we did a study of the group, which means we, we had a, um, an IRB, which is a, basically means we were doing it, we were protecting everybody's privacy, everyone who took this survey. We did a survey and we asked, what, what does this group mean to you? What have you, how has it been useful? Why did you join it? You know, what, what value does this group have being connected to these other moms? And, you know, people, people joined for a variety of reasons. Some people wanted emotional support. You know, some people needed access to information and resources. Other Others wanted to hear about personal experiences of other people who had done it. You know, some of them wanted to share their own personal experience. But what we found in this study was that being a part of this group really provided a lot of benefits. It provided a community, a real community where, you know, it gave people hope to pursue becoming a mom if that's, if they were considering it. Um, It, it gave people uh, practical advice, uh, whether that was, you know, ask your doctor about such and such medication that you didn't know exist. Or I remember one of the survey respondents uh, found out there's a biologic where there's two different forms of it. And one of them stings when you inject it. And one of them doesn't. And her doctor never bothered to tell her that there was an option that didn't sting. And so she found out about that through being connected to people who have been through this. Um, And then the study found that that sort of hive mind that I was talking about earlier was sort of 
really valuable to people that that they were look that you could find people in similar situations and and get answers to questions that you know your other mom friends might not be able to answer you know whether that's like okay i've moved on from bottles now i need a sippy cup none of these work for my hands what do i do do i try seven million sippy cups no this mom got a recommendation from someone in the group and found one that worked for you or someone was having trouble getting their child out of the car seat which you know, it's supposed to be hard to unbuckle a car seat. That's what keeps the kids safe, right? But there's products that exist to help make it easier for moms to unbuckle a car seat, which personally I never would have known about had someone not shared it with me. And so what we found was that the group is providing better health care for women by empowering them and teaching them how to talk to their doctors about family planning goals and, and also a community where they could get, you know, hope and connect with people who understand what it's going through. So I, I am excited to take what I've learned and try to continue growing this website and community so that, you know, we can reach moms who still need to find these resources. And, and, you know, so maybe that we can fill in some of the gaps that, that we know there's a lack of information, just like there was for me, you know, nine years ago. Absolutely. No, it's so powerful. And I was so happy to see, you know, the reception of that talk, you know, a lot of the rheumatologists who primarily the audience was rheumatologists, and they were just they spoke really positively and said that it was so helpful for them to see because again, I think a lot of times and this is a gross generalization, but the rheumatologists, they're very focused on the medications, which I am very pro medication, right? Medication is like how I'm able to function, but they, they can sometimes not understand like the lived experience and the needs mm-hmm. like beyond like medications are like the base of our pyramid of quality of life. Right. But we have all these right. other things that, um, that we need support with, you know, satisfying to be able to show them this evidence that, connecting to other patients is helpful. And I think that's true across the board, you know, whatever you're dealing with, but particularly in this unique case where we're as, as moms, where we're facing these unique challenges that there just weren't resources for. And so there's a need for that. And so I hope that the doctors who heard me speak will consider sending women my way. And then maybe I can talk to some of them and and learn more and bring those resources to people who are interested in this topic. Yeah. And just to, for the record, you know, you initially got a, a grant to create your yes. website, right? But this yes. is kind of out of the goodness of your own heart at this point. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I launched the Facebook group after attending the healthy Vo- the very first healthy voices conference. Oh, right. mm-hmm. um, and it was at that conference. I thought I had been thinking for a while about what I could do to help moms with RA. And I realized that that conference, which if you don't know, is a conference that brings together people with a variety of medical conditions to kind of work together. And I realized there that even if I don't have the same diagnosis as a mom, for example, today's World IBD Day, a mom living with IBD, we actually have a lot of the same experiences when it comes to mother. We do motherhood. We deal with some of the same medications where, you know, we're parenting children while managing our own health conditions. And so I realized that we could kind of have a bigger community of moms that could be there to support each other. So I launched the group. And then, yes, I did get a small grant to help me um, get the website up off of the ground. Uh, And since then, I've just sort of been running it because I think this is important information that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, there are lots of websites out there that will talk about, you know, certain chronic illnesses. And there are lots of websites out there that will tell you everything you could ever want to know and some things that you don't want to know about parenting advice. Um, And I just didn't see a lot of overlap. So I was trying to create that overlap and make it easier for, for women with chronic illnesses to find. Yeah, that that's wonderful. And yeah, I, I just want to make sure they knew that it doesn't cost anything to, you know, to access this information. You know, it's really a wonderful service that you've, that you've created. So I know that we are going to do a follow-up episode and I want to mention that, you know, in the follow-up as we'll talk about again, like the, the more of the parenting hacks for living with chronic pain, but also mental health too. Cause I know that's something you and mm-hmm. I are both really passionate about, like helping dispel sig- stigmas around getting support for, for mental health. And of course, in the immediate postpartum period is a time when a lot of people have a lot of big emotions. And so right. 
you know, we should, I just want to encourage everyone, if you are, you know, experiencing, you know, a lot of stress or anxiety or, or depression, you know, don't hesitate to, to seek out therapy or psychological support because it's, you know, it's a lot. Definitely. And it a is lot. a lot. It's a lot. And I, I remember I didn't go to a therapist until my son was a little over a year old. And I remember even her just validating that, like, wait, you've been through a lot. I'm like, oh, thank you. Like a professional, per- even just that val. It's like, <laughs> you know, you can give yourself validation, your friends and loved ones can give you validation. But like when you get it from a completely like objective source, it really is powerful. So not just validation, but also obviously like they give you a lot more than that. But just wanted to mention that for the record. But um, is there anything else you wanted the audience to know for today? Please know that Mama's Facing Forward, the group is open to you if you have a chronic illness and you're just considering whether you might like to become a mom someday. There's a, there's a small section of women in the group who just are there to get information and, um, and see, and it's, it's also open to you if you're, uh, past the pregnancy stage and just have kids. And we'll talk about that more next time, you know, cause it, it's not like, it's not like you get pregnant and you have a baby and then the rest of your life with chronic illness as a mom is easy. Like there's other other challenges that you will face. And, um, you know, my goal is to help people find a way to face forward, to find a way to go through those challenges and find strength. It's, It's such a wonderful service. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you. And I will be putting all your links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, a membership and support community where you'll learn how to develop your own Thrive toolbox so you can live a full life despite your rheumatic disease or chronic illness. Learn more in the show notes or by going to www.myarthritislife.net. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.